Welcome everyone to the show. And I'm I'm gonna tell you something. There's a deluge here. I feel like we're a nose arc. It is absolutely catastrophic. So we're completely soaked from head to toe, but then again, it is Florida. Uh, but it was quite interesting. Hope everybody had a wonderful weekend because it was absolutely bloody freezing here. And I mean for a reason. So most unusual weather reports all over the globe. Hope you understand. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but anyway. All right. So today we are talking to a very, very unusual, absolutely delightful gentleman by the name of Tarek Wildman. And this is a chap who grew up in Spain, London, and partly in the U.S., He's absolutely divinely bizarre with such joy in life. He is an expert on history, old cars, and planes. Now, that's, I mean, he's a guy's guy. His wife is a licensed to fly jumbo jets, planes, and helicopters. I mean, hello, Louise. I feel like a ding dong. He is a daredevil who lives on the edge, but gives great joy to all of his friends and tremendous loyalty. He's the Pied Piper and the Peter Pan to his flock of friends, which are the most unusual people you've ever met. His group of friends will include such characters as you have never known. Oh, by the way, Tarek's daughter is graduating from high school in May. So, Ali, congratulations. Your father is very proud of you, and this podcast is for you, young lady. Do enjoy the show. And without further ado, I would like to talk about... Team Shush, which Tarek Wildman started in 1994, but I'd like to introduce you personally as a friend and an absolutely wonderful person. Please welcome Tarek Wildman to the show. Tarek, so glad to have you. How are you? Thank you, beautiful Deandra Begassier, and the compliments are showering on me even faster than the raindrops fall outside. <laughs> it's a beautiful day here in Florida if you're a duck, um, but otherwise uh, we have umbrellas. Um, yes. All right, so he started a Team Shush in 1994 and has gathered, I must say, about, what, 150 friends? Yes, well, on Team Shush, probably at this point, we have a close sight, about 275. That but that's over 25 years. So there's never anybody that you don't know that doesn't know him or doesn't know the Team Shush. Now, he has to explain what Team Shush is because it's actually very, very odd. So go ahead. Give it a next It's part. very odd. I, I, I grew up in the mountains of Connecticut when I was a teenager, and I learned to drive because I love machines on snowy roads and gravel, slithering and sliding about, rather like if you're a skier skiing down a hill. And I love machines that were old and odd. And then when I came to England, I was an investment banker or a stockbroker with the American investment firm. I went to one or two rallies in the snow, and we did very well, surprisingly well, because after all, I'd grown up in the snow, but I didn't realize it. But then I realized, in these races, you're just going for it, and you may win a cup, you may not, but you can't really stop and enjoy the view. So I thought one day, with a friend of mine who is Dutch, co-driver, let's make our own one, and let's make it odd. Let's make it so every car has to be built before Nixon resigned. That was 20 years before at the time. So therefore, it has a chance of breaking down. Because if you see, if you have a new car, you're just saying to yourself, how long before you get there? We get there. But if you have an old car, you're going to yourself, hooray, we got there. I love it. I love it. So, so it's, for, it's for, for people actually who love to doodle, who love to sort of work around cars, mechanical. And it's all one big confusion yeah. a bit. Everyone helps each other. Some people don't know anything about cars, but they can make great picnics. That would be me. <laughs> Some people are just mad, but that's very important. Some people are very, almost too sane. They should be accountants, but they're very useful because they plan things. Cars, any machine, after they get old, 
slowly, slowly, without you noticing it, begin to acquire soul. If you buy a new car or a new machine or anything of any type, or even a fridge, when it's new, everyone admires it. After 10 years old, no one notices it. And after 20 years, people want to throw it away. But after 30 years, somewhere in the darkness, it begins to get a personality. And it begins to become, if it's Italian, it becomes Maria Callas. If it's a German car, it becomes a Merlina Dietrich. If it's an English car, it becomes maybe the Duchess of Downton. Really, get out of my way, you haven't changed my tires. Um, and they all sort of start to speak to you, and you've got to start respecting them back. And this is how Team Shush began. It began with a a love of the machine and the realization that old machines, very old machines, start to acquire, almost like a horse does, a soul. And each one is slightly different. And people look at them and say, it's just a, a machine. And you go, well, actually, yes and no. Yeah, <laughs> the conundrum of it all. So I, I had the, the joy of going on a team shush last summer in April. And it just happened we all had to uh, meet up in Portland, Maine and take all the old cars, we're talking 62 MG, 69 Pontiac that we called the Big Bertha, then we had the Juliet, which was a Fiat. Everything was just old and rickety, and we had a Cobra that was handmade. It was all like very exciting, and we put these cars on this big boat to get to Yarmouth. So anyway, you gotta tell them what happened to the Big Bertha when we got on the boat. All these cars come from, the whole rule about Team Shush is that anyone, everyone is equal, and it doesn't matter whether your car is a Fiat or a Ferrari, or it's a Porsche or a Ford Pinto, it doesn't matter at all. The second thing about Team Shush is that everyone looks after each other, and that everybody who breaks down is come, people come back and help. And one of the most important things is that every driver picks at random a co-driver out of a hat the night before. So they have a day with this person they haven't met. And many's the time people have gone, oh my God, I hope I'm not driving with that D'Andela Bergasier over there. My God, what a piece of work. And that by that evening, having of course picked them out of the hat, if that's what then happens if they curse themselves in this way, they go, gosh, she's amazing. I didn't know we you know, had so much in common. And that's very nice. So in Maine, we had a bunch of weird cars, as is usual. Some were expensive, some were cheap. And uh, we drove all around the coast of Nova Scotia, which is really beautiful. Yeah, but wait, tell them what happened on the boat when you... Well, <laughs> well, we just drove onto the boat, and it was one of these cars. It was rather like a low-hanging fruit. It had a low-hanging exhaust pipe. And so the car was gliding onto the boat with a slither of sound, and suddenly it was <laughs> like a Sherman tank. I'm going like, oh, that's left off the next exhaust pipe. But that, that happens. You know, you know, it's a, a par for the course, really. So we fixed it, and everyone else made a picnic. Exactly. And then... The joy of it all is that we had we the had, avion. We had an aeroplane. One of these guys has um, um, people. It's not limited. People come on ancient motorbikes. People have come in in Volkswagen microbuses. People have come in Ferraris. People have come in Fords. It doesn't matter what this. This character brought a giant World War II transport plane called a C-47 or Dakota, and um, it was he put in, put a mini moke inside it, which is a tiny jeep-like thing. And um, we're sitting eating some fish. Found some little cheap fish shack on the coast. The fog's rolling in, and suddenly I've, I've heard from him. That we're getting close, and I say, everyone, just all the Canadians, look, have a look outside. May see it plane suddenly this thing comes flying over at 100 feet does a u-turn comes back at 75 feet turns twice more and then disappears out into the fog and i'm going like yes <laughs> really beautiful thing and it's just because everybody likes machines but they're all old and the rule is with this team shush anyone can come any cars allowed any car as long as it's over 20 years old on the other hand if you're over 60 
or if you're demonstrably pregnant, you can drive a new car. If you're both, you can fly a helicopter. <laughs> well, there's some activity here. But anyway, the plane had gone at the Battle of the Bulge and the Battle of Normandy, which is really a true fact. It was absolutely the most amazing instrument we've ever seen. Huge plane, only 17,000 pounds, which is very, very light for a plane. Absolutely empty inside, and he put nine old seats from Pan Am flight so we could all go inside and sort of look at the view and take pictures and sort of whoop up like a bird and swoop up like a bird. Absolutely the most amazing thing we've ever been in. So we sort of took tours and did all sorts of fabulous things. And that was kind of our, what would you call it, a part of the highlight of the trip, I have to say. Any kind of, any kind of thing is beloved and any kind of machine is like a horse and everyone looks after each other. And this is the, this is, just one of the, the only really, the really beautiful thing about this is it uses machines as a funny sort of way of getting people to get to know each other. And unlike most rallies or most races where cars are highly expensive and highly polished and driven by millionaires who look at them with like with touch with kid gloves, these things go through the desert sand, they go through the mud of Scotland or Ireland, they go through the heat of the Spanish plains, they go through the rains of Florida or Nova Scotia, and it doesn't matter what kind of car it is, everybody looks after it, everybody just does what it needs to do. And so huge friendships are formed. We've had three marriages due to this. We've had huge numbers of adventures. We've had people who have, haven't got a penny in their pockets. Um, and we have people who have got hundreds and hundreds or billions of dollars and nobody seems, nobody cares at all. And everyone's the same. And everyone, if we break down, everyone just circles back and fixes the car or whatever it is. So we just did one through Alligator Alley, which was fabulous. And he's planning one in Greece, I believe. This sounds fantastic. When I was um, starting banking, I got hired after, I'm, I'm 56 now, I got hired by, uh, anonymously, by the chief of London, of the best, at that point, best investment bank on Wall Street, I think. So I turn up in London, and then he vanished. He, he promptly quit as soon as he saw me. He was called Miles. And he thought, God, I've made a huge mistake. This is the end of my career. And he got on a motorbike and rode to Istanbul, and then wrote a book, wrote a book about it. And bit by bit, he came back on these rallies, and I met him again, and now he's bought a car for himself. He drives around in a, a red Corvette from 1962 because he thinks that's properly butch because he loves the rock and roll era. And he loves Greece because he used to row. And after he rowed for Oxford, he went to Greece as a sort of beach boy. And he loved Greece. So he's planned this rally with pencils and pens on maps all around Greece with his love and huge knowledge of Greece. I know nothing about Greece. I can't spell, speak Greek. I know nothing at all about Greek. But this is what's good because you pass the ball along the line and somebody else goes, wow, I know about, I know about the Western United States. Let me do this one. Give me some maps. And this is what's happening. So we're going to go to Greece next May. Sounds divine. And I think you're ending up in Corfu. Yes. And there's like all these cars are going to be transported. I mean, I think you've got about 20 cars coming on this. Well, road. it's uh, they are. And this is part of the thing when you do something. If you're very, very rich, it doesn't matter what you do. But if you're very, very rich, it becomes very, very boring. Um, if you imagine yourself very, very rich and all your life, you spend yourself surrounded by seven-star hotels and staff and all these things, eventually you are bored out of your tree. If you're really poor, you're desperate. So what if you had both? 
What if suddenly a rich person goes, wow, I'm in a little inn. This is amazing. I am having to do, you know, there's no one to call on except me. You get this feeling of like, wow, I did that. This car broke down. I fixed it. If you're somewhat less rich, you go like, wow, this is amazing. These people are just, we're all taking care of each other. It's fantastic. And this is what, this is what the whole point of it. It's, it's really like almost like a commune of people where everybody looks after each other. So the transporting of these cars can be expensive, but various people who've got a bit of money say, well, we're just going to chuck this money into a pot to get these cars out there. I think that sounds brilliant. So your plans are to travel quite a lot. Tarek is sort of the nomad, but we also love the fact that he puts so many friends together. For instance, part of the reason that my was able to do this podcast was through this rally with um, Tarek where I met Jason who is a producer. Hello this, Jason. I mean Jason, what did I just say? Didn't hmm? I say that? Yes, no, I'm just saying hello Jason. Yeah, we're, oh hi Jason. And If you're listening. Yeah, well I, he does, he edits. So there, are, as he said, there are multiple friendships that develop and multiple f people that have never met each other and sort of know half the world that they knew but they didn't know that they were in it. And it's absolutely magical. I mean, you could just, I mean, you meet these wackadoodles and you just go, I am so happy. I love every single one of them. And it's rather very magical. And we have a laugh and a half, a laugh and a half a day. But there's so much more to Tarek about just that. Uh, his vivaciousness, his absolute historical knowledge of just about everything. He should have been a professor. You should have been a history professor. Mad professor. The mad professor. <laughs> that would be a bad job. I would say that the, being a professor and doing a Team Shush thing is one similar thing. Is people come, when I was a kid, you remember your best teachers. You remember the people yes. who really inspired you. They tend to be the ones who are odd and who are thoughtful. And the ones who just are thought-provoking. And the ones who just go back many, many years later and you think, wow, I wonder if that man's still alive or that woman is still alive. What amazing, how, what they taught me just by, almost sometimes by not saying something or just the inference. And Team Shush is a tribe. That's what it is. To, I think to all are in it. It's, it's rather like an old nomadic tribe. It's nothing to do with, with family or where you went to school, prestige, your banking, how much money you have. It's a tribe. And this is a beautiful thing to have a tribe because tribes look out for each other. And tribes have an un, they just know what the other people are looking for and how they act. And being a professor would be perhaps being rather like one of these people. There are all sorts of odd professors in Team Shush. I'm by no means the only one. And everyone has their, their angle and their expertise. Some people are brilliant with machines. One person rode a 1937 motorbike all the way across Africa, from London to Cape Town, through the Sudan and Kenya and Abyssinia and all these places. Other people just are very odd and just are brilliant with money. Other people are photographers. Other people paint. Other people do absolutely nothing at all, but they try. There are some who are gardeners. There are some who are fishermen. There are some who are painters. There are some who are entitled tycoons. But it seems to be when they all come together, they're all like a bit mad professors, and they all look out for each other, and they all, without having any pretense, teach each other something the other person hasn't yet seen. And that's the most beautiful thing. That is true. When one we, when I was in Portland, Maine, there was this couple. I mean, they looked like J. Crew models, right? And I, I mean, they looked twelve. You're talking about Tweedy and Holly. Yes, Tweedy and Holly. Mm. And I just thought, well, my goodness, they must be nineteen or something. So I was about to say, well, are you in college? She said, well, actually, I'm doing 
a PhD at Harvard. I mean, my jaw dropped. They both were. I know. And then Shocking. I turned to the other fellow who looked like another model from J. Crew magazine. I said, and what are you? He said, well, I'm actually a professor at Harvard. And I thought, well, bonkers me. I feel like a complete ding wing. I said, well, I'm just funny. I, you know, I just didn't know what to say. And they were the cutest little pe- people I've ever met. And I said, are you, he, he was teaching some sort of theory of I economics. I was teaching economics yes. and ethics. And I said, surely that's an oxymoron. Oh, that's what I said. I said, tell them not to cheat, lie, or steal. I said, your class is over. Mm. It's a very, was... very short course. Yes, exactly. Anyway, so we are off. And um, so you're going to be in California for Ali's graduation. Well, I hope so. And um, I hope to see Ali on one of these Team Shush things as one gets older and fatter and more ugly. It's very nice to have highly beautiful and intelligent children. I have a wonderful son called Maximilian who loves machines and Ali who is a natural driver um, and you know, she's just bought her first car which she absolutely loves and wants to know all about which is a very good sign because some people when they buy their first car they go oh dear it crashed. <laughs> Not note I crashed it but it crashed and then they you know and they try and find another one. She bought it with her own money and fixes it and polishes it and looks after it and even knows all the bits of the engine. So I mean, Ali Wildman yes and and Max Wildman, too. Well, I suppose that came from you, my dear friend, because if you you know everything about cars, nuts and bolts, he actually could smell a car and know what the problem is, which is absolutely something I don't understand. But I can fake it. Ah, know, I can say this I to the other. So. I say, I, I can smell. Smell it's a gearbox. In fact, it's a complete load of bullshit. Oh. I just, um, just, just, you know, like, but on the other hand, if, they, if everyone else knows less than you, you can fake almost anything. Well, as everybody said, if two people are, uh, agree, they're, they're both wrong. <laughs> but um, I know nothing about cars, by the way. And I always get in somebody else's car by accident. I, I have no idea. I know the color. I wouldn't know what it is or anything else. So I have put these gigantic red stripes on my cars. So I figured, well, if I see my car with a big red stripe, I know it is mine. And so, you know, everybody has sort of little emblems and funny things on their cars. Well, mine are gigantic red stripes. People think I'm, they come up to me and say, are you in the diplomatic corps? I mean, they all think it has some amazing kind of, we don't know, it's so cool. And I'm like, no, dear, it's because I can't find the bloody thing in a parking lot. And I'm a terrible driver, so I, I sort of enjoy, you know, the batons when a plane comes through and they're standing there with the batons and they're lit up and they're telling you to go left, right. Well, that's my job in the navigation department of Team Shush. I just sort of go left and right and forward and stay calm. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing, so it's kind of nice of them to sort of invite me on this. But the reason it is called Team Shush is, Tarek? Well, okay. First of all, funny thing about her stripes. I've never seen any cars with the color dark blue with red stripes down the side for 30 years before I met Deanne. My grandparents had a house in Florence and they had two Fiats with station wagons to get groceries and they were dark blue with red stripes down the side. And one of those two Fiats was my first car, which is why all my favorite cars are dark blue. So Team here we Shush. go. Team Shush became a very odd thing when after this thing we decided we we're going to go on a little mini rally. Well, before mobile phones, we're in Andalusia in the summertime, in the springtime. And as we're driving across country with everyone in different cars, no mobile phones, which made it a lot more interesting, as they say in China. Um, may you live in interesting times, i.e. if you stayed broke, if you got broken down, you stayed broken down. Two out of the three cars got to this tiny and beautiful place, which I cannot recommend highly enough. If any of you are going to Granada in Spain to see the Alhambra, try to find online a tiny hotel called the Hotel America. It is minute, 
covered in vines. The rooms are small but incredibly beautiful, no bigger than the studio we're in. And my father said, you should go there if you're planning a little kind of, doing your little kind of first mini excursion. We didn't know its name then. He said they don't have to advertise because people know about them, but you can fax them. That's how long ago it was. He said, you can fax them. So I did. So on that night in April, we drove towards Granada and beautiful plains of Andalusia covered in wildflowers and the skies beginning to get dark and my cousin and I have lost everybody else. And we go into a little bar and come out and there... We're transfixed as we come out because in the glimmering twilight ahead of us is the biggest, biggest yellow-white full moon I've ever seen beginning to rise over the far Sierras. And we are transfixed and we stop. And we watch the moon until it hovers over the mountains and then seems to leap off them. Then we get in the car, the spell is broken, and we go to Granada. Well, we get there and there's no one there. One car's there, but the other one is missing. Well... We don't know what's going to happen. We've got to go back and find them. Finally, at 11 o'clock, it turns up. They just got terribly lost, but we were fearing the worst. Well, the kitchen's closed. There's no food at all. We've got some red wine in the car and packets of crisps with a ghost on them. So we're eating the packets of crisps covered in ghost logos. And the little, there's a little man. He comes out and he goes, hey, you're making noise. Shh, shh, he goes. I'm going, we're not. We're the only people here. He goes, no, 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 shh. So... Someone says, well, I know what we should call ourselves. I said, what? Team Shh. So next year I designed a logo, which is the ghost from the crisp packet, and Team Shh. And the man is still alive, and he's still there, and he's still running the bar. Two years ago we went back, and I thought, could we find this man? I thought I saw someone like him, much older now. I said to him, what's your name? He said, Angelo, he replied in Spanish. I said, what do you say to people when they're making too much noise? He said, I go Shh. I said, let me introduce you to some friends. And that's why... And let me tell you what you made. Ah, that's wonderful. But what he said was that what goes on on Team Shush stays on Team Shush. And so we were given these wonderful itineraries. It's not exactly Las Vegas, darling. I know. Well, I think it's so cool. And somebody looked at me and said, don't bother reading it because whatever happens usually is not on the itinerary. And I thought, what a hoot. So I just sort of tossed the piece of paper around said, well, the hell with that one. I'm just going to go with the flow, which is exactly the whole point of the whole thing. So anyway, I wish luck to absolutely everybody on this thing. And we're just going to carry on. And now we're going to discuss some hysterical, laughable, lunatic stories from Miss D's Lunacy and Monsieur Tarek. The floor is yours. Well, Miss, Miss D, thank you so much. Lunacy um, and Team Shush often go together, but remembering it's all about the machines and the ancient machines which start developing a soul and can be repaired by almost anything. One day a man is going through the desert and his car has a little thing called a, um, a distributor which whirls around at the same speed as the engine and suddenly it flies to pieces. And he glues it together with a Coca-Cola tin and carries on all the way back to Spain using a Coca-Cola tin. And another time, there's one of these guys on these trips who's quite famous but just in England because he has his own TV show. He's a political satire guy. Well, we've all taken a wrong turning down a desert road and the desert roads turn to a road of rocks and the road of rocks goes on forever and the cars are breaking to pieces and we're doing walking speed and there's a huge storm coming up in the far distance and now the road is divided and there's no signpost and we're too far on to go back and we don't know which way we're going so we stop and everyone asks me which way do we go and I go I don't know 
But there's one guy who speaks French, and this is the guy who has a TV show. And because in the distance, I see a small plume of dust, like Omar Sharif's camel in Lawrence, Arabia, coming towards us in the far, far distance. Like, it's a car. It's down the road to the right, the little track, very slowly bouncing along. You speak French, Rory. You go ask him which way we go. So the car comes along, and it comes to a stop, and the window goes down. And before Rory gets his mouth open, an English voice from inside the car goes, Here, are you that man from the telly? Five hundred kilometers south of Marrakesh. All these things, all these things are just about people in, uh, getting together and loving each other and looking after each other. And the whole point about b these old machines is that they are like old, they're like horses, they're like animals, and they all are just a way of people just really bonding and getting to know each other and in times of sort of reasonable adversity and just doing stuff like this, which is really beautiful. And over over 20 years, a lot of friendships have formed and they're very quiet friendships. Okay, now remember that crazy friend of ours who had decided to bring sort of an old rickety card that he Oh, there's a, to one of the many is this marvelous Australian fella and he's a big as a bear and he always, he loves his, he used to be very rich, sort of fallen on hard times, but his soul is completely undestroyed and he is the most wonderful man and he has a big Ford Thunderbird and he's driving through the Alps but he hasn't brought a jack so the Ford Thunderbird keeps getting flat tyres and I unfortunately have taken a bet to drive a microbus through the Alps and this is not the fastest thing the trouble is if you're not the fastest thing you're always at the back and the thing is if you're always at the back the code of shush is you've got to help others but if you're always at the back you're always finding people who've broken down and I began to find this dear friend rather too often he broken down three flat tires in three hours but he didn't bring a jack and then it was a fuel pump so i go like okay what's the story he says well fuel pump's gone oh, it does this all the time just whack it with a hammer and well yeah but you do whack it with a hammer you have to whack it with a hammer twice and it start up again he said just whack it with a hammer twice gets in the car drives on disappears because he's got a thunderbird and i've got a volkswagen microbus 15 minutes later there he is again well i think it's a fuel pump i said we know it's a fuel pump well i think it's a fuel pump you know but you whack it with a hammer it's one of the fuel pumps i got in saint tropez it doesn't work very well but i think you whack listen we're missing our flight whack it with a hammer oh yeah okay whack it with a hammer whacks the hammer disappears again <laughs> now we come to a tunnel on the autostrada the police are going tunnel is blocked the tunnel is a block the tunnel is a block so the volkswagen splitty microbus is now fuming fumes fuming fumes I have a suspicion what's blocking the tunnel, but I don't know until I get to the other side of the tunnel. And there he is again. Well, it's a fuel pump. Done it a third time. Did it in the tunnel this time. Bit of a problem, really. I mean, the tunnel, you know, it's a bit dark in there. I couldn't really see what's going because I don't have a flashlight. But now you're here. Well, I mean, it was this one I brought in Santa Pay. A bit dodgy. If you, I said, whack it twice with the hammer. Well, yeah. Well, so um, Miss D was having his soiree in London, and she invited me to it. And I said, I'll be there. But unfortunately, having missed a flight, I had no alternative after having followed this dear friend and fixed his fuel pump about four or seven, was it nine times? But to drive this Volkswagen microbus across Europe at high speed. High speed for a Volkswagen microbus, dear listeners, is about 48 miles per hour. Um, and it's smoking like it's smoking like something going down in flames. And we're eventually using more oil as we are gasoline. And so I get to London about three days after Lady Di Lunacy has um, his party has ended. It's all part of life's rich tapestry, isn't it, really? <laughs> so he has a house in Capillera, which, by the way, it takes, what, a dump truck to take you up there? Capillera is a hobbit house. It's, a, it's the highest village in Spain. It's at 5,500 feet. On one side, you have Africa in the distance, down with this valley and across the Mediterranean Sea. And behind you, hugely high mountain covered in snow. 
and it is a place I go and this is sort of the, the one of the places everyone just gathers at it's very rustic the beams are low they're made of chestnut trunks and laths and stones across them everything is whitewashed within and no two rooms don't have several steps between them because it's in the on a mountain village side and there are goats and sheep in the village and people drive ride uh, mules with panniers with straw on their sides and to drive up there amongst the almond blossoms and the wild flowers and this incredible switchback roads which takes about 45 minutes when you come off the coast it's the most beautiful thing for a driver ever and you go higher and higher and as you go higher your ears pop and the stars get closer and finally you're in this little mountain village and you just swoop in and you stop and the silence is complete and how do you get the bloody hell up on the house well you then have to walk down with everything on your back or if you're really lazy like I am you get someone with a dumper truck and you put everything in the dumper truck and they come down or with a mule and you get down and then you're in the house and you can then turn off all the sound and all the lights and look at the stars. Well I'm never going to go there because I saw a picture that somebody took and the clouds were underneath you. Yes sometimes they are because you're so high up you're like in an airplane. But I mean how the hell do you walk up 20 minutes up rocks to get to this house. Oh no, the house is in a village and the village is just on a steep slope where mineral water comes from. The mineral water of Spain of the south comes out of the rocks. So every bath you run, every drink you drink from a tap is what other people pay for in bottles further down the hill and all over Spain to Madrid. And it's beautiful because the house is got lots of rooms and cubby holes and tiny things and living rooms and sitting rooms and rooms you can terraces you can sit on with views and chairs and this and that and lots and lots and lots of books hundreds of books yes he reads nonstop reads nonstop it's I, I don't seem to have time to read but Tarek, tell everybody about how your name came about because it's very interesting because I thought it was about the Ottoman Empire which you I think told me I was wrong fairly close a long time ago there was um, Spain was part of the Roman Empire in fact, many of the famous emperors, if you've ever, anyone you've ever seen um, Gladiator, he came from Rome, the character in, uh, sorry, he came from Spain. Many of the, Span- of the Roman emperors and warriors came from Spain. And as the Roman Empire collapsed, it was taken over by the Visigoths. And as the uh, Muslim Empire began to increase, the Berbers of Morocco, not true Arabs, the Berbers, Othello, for instance, Shakespeare's Othello was a Berber, great warriors, began to raid Spain, just as the Vikings were raiding England several thousand miles to the north. One of the great warrior leaders of the Berbers was a man called Tarek, and he decided he was going to raid Spain properly with 7,000 men. And he landed in the year 712 at a big rock, which they called Jebel el Tariq, Hill of Tarek, which the English, when they took it over a thousand years later or 800 years later, couldn't really pronounce. So they shortened Jebel el Tariq to Gibraltar. So the rock of Gibraltar is where Tarek landed. He was then confronted by 25,000 Visigoths under King Roderick. So giving a a famous speech saying to his men, ahead of you the enemy, behind you the sea, conquer or die, he burnt his boats. His men beat the three times their number and all of Spain lay before them. And in this time where you have all this stuff with the Muslims and the Christians and all this horrible hatred, what happened next is quite telling and rather good. He rode north. He was a Muslim, newly converted. Every town he got to, he said, you have two choices. They said, what are the choices? Well, you can resist, he said, in which case we'll attack you and put you to the sword. All the men, the women, concubines, the children, slaves. They went, ooh, that's not good. What's choice B? Choice B is you can technically, technically say you're Muslim. 
In fact, you don't have to really. If you want to be Christian or Jewish, that's fine. Just you pay 10% tax on 5% tax. Um, in that case, things were going on as before. We'll send 10, 10 men, 50 men in to keep, make sure we keep you honest. Which is it to be? So all of these guys, mm, let us think, we'll take choice B. <laughs> so they then went on and conquered Spain on horseback in 18 months, getting right up to the south of France. And Spain, for a time, as a consequence of this tolerance, became the most amazing place in the world. Cordoba was the, model, was the New York of a thousand years ago. It had a Jewish chancellor, it had Christians, it had Muslims. Everyone got on. They you know, reinvented mathematics. The libraries were saved. It's street lighting, running water. All the time in the north, in the sort of the countries of England and Germany, people were burning each other at the stake, chopping each other's hands off, living in the mud. Um, down there, incredible tolerance. And um, so Tarek, I was called by my father, who was called Frederick, because of this. And I rather like the name, personally. It's an amazing story, actually, because I have heard of that, the Rock of Gibraltar, that they couldn't say it and everything. Now, the English still own it, and there's a big fight over there going on about when the British should they're going to give it back or whatever. The, the, well, it's, it's a marvelous irony, because the Spanish, at the same time, have two small enclaves in Morocco, Melilla and Ceuta, which they won't give back to Moroccans. At the same time, they're going, well, the British should give back Gibraltar. And Gibraltar is really not the most salubrious place in the world, but unfortunately the Treaty of Utrecht in 1714, after I think the War of Spanish Succession, the Brits with the French, I don't know quite who was involved, having beaten the Spanish, they got this small rock forever, which is one thing you shouldn't do in life. You can give someone a lease like the Chinese did with Hong Kong for 99 years, but don't do it forever. Anyway, the Spanish did, and that was King Philip the Watsit, I don't know. But anyway, ever since then, they're going, that's not right. And then you say, well, the Gibraltarians want to be Gibraltarians and eat fish and chips and live on a rock surrounded by apes. And the Spanish go, well, he's part of Spain. And well, the Moroccans should go like, well, those two are part of... Anyway, it's, it's a... Anyway, so it goes. But, but it they has, say it's a very strategic place. Well, it is a strategic place in the war. Uh, the Germans wanted to send paratroops to drop. It is strategic. Today, I think it's a big nothing. Um, there are a huge number of Anglo-Spanish families now who are from that part of the world who have married and intermarried. So, you know, this has been going on for 300 years now. So I think almost it's more a war of posturing than of reality. It's a more a, a little bit of Trumpesque machismo rather than anything real. But, you know, that's how people get, that's how nations get. They take big things, little things, and make them into big things. But you fly there to get to Soto Grande, and then when you go grocery shopping, you bring your passport, take your car, go through the line, go shopping like crazy, which is supposedly much cheaper than in Spain. Well, so. if you're going to wear some of the, you know, the Soto Grande, which is very nice, it's quite close. But it, normally what the Spanish do just to harass the Brits is, you know, even though it's supposed to be part of the EU, they um, have, you know, the line at the border, you know, they'll check your tire pressures, they'll make sure headlights the right kind for the EU, they'll make sure the gasoline in your fuel tank is the right colour, and then after 55 minutes of checking, they'll let you through, and now they will get the next one in the line, which extends for about four hours behind. So no one, unless you really have to, flies into Gibraltar, you generally fly into Malaga, and the whole thing to me is a bit of a mystery, but that's how, you know, it's almost like nations are sometimes like children with each other. I know. Well, anyway, my horror story was that uh, my son was very little, but I don't know how, how old he was, eight, nine, ten, and uh, she had her two little girls, and we decided to take the children on the Gibraltar rock for them to see the monkeys. And we're carrying on, and the kids are jumping up and down full of energy, and everything's wonderful, and they're seeing all the monkeys, and we stop, and I don't know, have a juice or something for the kids, and there are, because it's so high up, 
the, the what do you call it, the, the gondola comes up to pick you up at a certain area, and there's about a three, maybe a foot drop, a foot drop between the rock and the step on which to go onto the pontoon to get onto the, the um, gondola. Well, my sister had the stupidity of looking down 3,000 feet into the middle of nowhere and could not get on the, pon- the platform and froze into absolute horror of vertigo because she'd look down rather than sort of step above the, the, the slat. So the kids are now in the gondola. We're all about to get in the gondola, and three men are trying to yank her, but she's now frigid, rigid with fear and cannot move. So I stay behind with her, let the children go, who are petrified, and they had to send a gondola with three fellows to literally pry her off because of the fear of God she had in her. I've never seen anything like it. Because terrorizing, when you get terrorized, you can't move. And you get this incredible strength of not being able to move. So we had quite a to-do. I said, I don't think I'm going back on that rock ever again. But it's frightening because of the, of the steep... It's amazing, Gibraltar, because underneath Gibraltar they have more tunnels inside it than their roads outside it. Huge tunnels and secret batteries of guns. Since the days of Napoleon, huge caverns filled with things, some natural, some man-made. But the most dangerous thing, if you're carrying a camera or any valuable, are the rock apes. These apes, they say, came in secret tunnels across the nine miles from Morocco under the sea and have emerged, and they're highly intelligent, and they work in packs. One of them, when you're not looking, will grab your camera. You'll go, give it back, and rather than running away, it'll just pass it like a football player over your head to its mate, another another rock ape, who'll look at you and go, ha-ha, and then pass it down the line, and the one at the end of the line will scamper off with it, and you'll never see it again. They work in teams of about six, and they just sit there looking at you, and they're brilliant, but you don't want them to get anywhere near your camera. So if you go to Gibraltar, have a lovely time and see the caves, but make sure you keep your camera strapped, because it won't be gypsies, it won't be a human thief, it'll be a rock ape that takes it and uses it like an American football. They can throw a camera with incredible accuracy, and I've seen them do it, for 50 feet to be caught out of midair by another ape, who'll then pass it 20 feet to a third ape, who'll pass it 15 feet to the runner ape, who will disappear with your camera so fast, he will be a speck in the distance within 12 seconds well, or less. Well, it's exactly what happened when we went to Angkor Wat just recently in November uh, with one of my guests who actually will be coming on the show as well. And we went to Angkor Wat. We all were there, and it's absolutely beautiful, and people are taking pictures and everything. And this fellow was carrying a plastic bag. And, of course, I'm hearing the rattling, right? And I said to everybody, what's this rattling? They said, oh, it's the little monkeys that run around, and they make a lot of noise, and they rattle the scaffolding, which are doing renovations on the, the, the temple, you understand? And all of a sudden, you start seeing these little monkeys everywhere. Well, this little fellow was carrying his bag, and he had bread in it. Well, the monkey came right up to him, snatched the bag, opened it up, and started eating the bread, looked at him like, hey, what's the matter for you? It's for me. And we were absolutely amazed. So all, and then he starts throwing Damn it. Damn Democrats. Yeah, I know, and he starts throwing the bread to all his pals, and the guy was just stupefied. He didn't know what to do. Socialist monkeys in Cambodia. So, exactly. Well, I can no, say I like a bit this. of a socialist themselves, rather than, actually, they're commies, to tell you the truth, I think. But anyway, it was actually very funny. So Gibraltar and... Cambodia, they've got the little funny monkeys. Beware, it's all very good. beware. It's all very good. But in Europe, the Gibraltar rock apes, they're the pros. The rock apes of Gibraltar are just, you have to admire them. They are, if they were, if they were football players, they would win every NFL, every Rugby World Cup. They are just amazing. They'd have to make the mini ones, though, like the little mini balls. Um, I mean, 
you can be a big, strong rugby player, but if you've got some rock ape against you, you can throw a pass like those guys can, you're not going to get a look in. All that happens is they'd run between your legs, run down the touchline and score a goal. And they may not be able to kick very well, but they'd score so many tries. A rugby World Cup would belong to Gibraltar. I'm waiting for that time to happen. Now, wait a second. Talking about rugby, I want to understand why, in goodness creation, are they going to Dubai to make a, the rugby tournaments or the soccer tournaments? That's football. Uh, whatever, well, whatever you want to call it, and 120 degrees in the shade. It's probably called bribery. Well, I couldn't agree it's with you. Probably more. called probably called set blatter and all the rest who've been oh no sort of under indicted, arrested, or on the run or something rather than various amounts of money. Well, dare I say this? Probably, I'm just saying possibly, probably, possibly. Who knows? But I wouldn't. I, I smell the Manila envelope. Well, darling, this makes no sense. I mean, we're going to have ten players who are going to collapse of heat exhaustion every five minutes. Hmm. Sure. But it's, it's good, but it's good for the economy to have the World Cup there. And I, if enough money changes hands with FIFA officials, we'll get the Rugby Cup there, right? Yeah, I don't know. I Vladimir Putin, never heard of him? Oh, yes, Winter I Olympics, did. jolly good. Well, he did the snow. And he also did the next World Cup. So excellent work. Unbelievable. Now mm. tell me, after all these wonderful places, what is another place you absolutely adore? You, I, I know you love Connecticut very much. I like places that are alone that are beautiful, where you can have solitude and you can just, where things are not fancy schmancy, where things are very beautiful and simple. Um, the trouble with the modern world, in a way, is that with cheap air travel, which I guess started in the 60s, everyone can travel anywhere. And that's great because everybody, all people are equal and they, everyone deserves this. But the victory of everyone being able to go everywhere is all the beautiful places, tend to get destroyed by a welter of people coming and people taking advantage of it and building hotels and so on. In some ways, the best time to be alive would have been the 60s, when the coasts of Europe were completely or generally completely unspoiled. And Spain was sugarcane fields going down to the sea, where now it's concrete hotel blocks, where Greece was just empty roads of dust going down to the beautiful coasts, beautiful islands, where now everywhere there is a resort hotel. And I like to find places, generally on Team Shush, where people go, oh, no, don't go there, it's dangerous. <laughs> Many years ago, there was a horrible civil war in the former Yugoslavia. One of the states that came out of this was Croatia, a beautiful place by all accounts. And it's very telling. In 2000, we were going to do a rally in Croatia. People ever met in London going, don't go there. They've got landmines, very dangerous. They've only just signed a peace treaty in Dayton, terribly dangerous. Well, we didn't do it that year, because that wasn't because we didn't want to, but because we screwed up on the planning. We went there a few years later. It was superb. But the kiss of death is five years after that. You go back now, and they go, Croatia, Hava, ah, here is the new Saint-Tropez, darling. And of course, the prices have gone through the ceiling, and the hotels have been built, and bit by bit, it's getting crushed. So what one must do is find places which are generally people perceive to be dangerous. As a rule of thumb, if it gets in the newspapers, it's not dangerous. If it gets on the news, newspapers being an old thing, it's not, it's not dangerous because it's an event for someone to get blown up or shot there. It's only when 700 people are killed at a market in X or Y and it only is on the back pages, then you shouldn't go there because it's probably happening every day. So we always try to look, and I always try to look for remote places like that. I think that's sort of the magic of what you do is that... You know, we were w driving down this beautiful 
beautiful road with the most incredible scenery with the lake and the sunset. And I mean, it was just right next to you. As the, and nobody was there, not a soul. So some of these trips are very, very uh, moving and beautiful and picturesque, which I understand what he's saying. We're so accustomed to talking and calling and faxing and digity doo and running around like crazy that we don't really take time to sit still and enjoy the moment, the views, the most wonderful flowers in the ground, I mean, in the fields. The, and we forget that a little bit about there's sometimes that we can sort of take a breath and not feel like we've got to rush to this appointment and rush to that party and this thing. So I, I completely understand that, of course, we can't do it every day because everybody has things to do. But it is a joy to sort of be in the peaceful mountains and peacefulness. I think it sort of gives you a revival. Indeed, it does. It's always possible. Even if you have no money at all or hardly anything, even if you have a job that tires you out, it's always possible to look at a map, even if you're only 50 miles away from where you live uh, all the time, to say, that looks like an, a wild spot. If it's something that's never appeared in the magazines, if, nothing, if it's not known yet, that's a place to look at. If you have a bit of time, if you have a weekend or a week, a holiday, just to take a plane to somewhere odd with a backpack and say, I'm going to get in a bus. You meet so many people on a bus you don't meet in a, in a car. I'm going to travel this to this place, and I'm going to get out in this town, and I don't know the language very well. I'm just going to walk around. You'll find a lot of people, all the people. You won't see this Can on the I? news. They're friendly, and you'll be really interested, and you'll go back having the experience you'll remember to the day you die. If you spend the same weekend going to a pub with your mates or going to a little club or something, you won't remember that after a week. But what is really good about life, and it doesn't cost much, is adventure. And my advice for adventure is to go where no one is talking about. You look at somewhere which is just is poor and is different and is beautiful. There are still places, and at least with modern air travel, you can get there. Travel light. Take with yourself a light duvet. I always take that for comfort, like a security blanket. An iPod player, which is always wonderful to have music wherever you go. Two or three changes of shirts and one work shirt. One He's not kidding. <laughs> one pair of shoes and one couple of pairs of jeans. And that will fit in a rucksack. And then just go for it. And go for it and go deliberately get lost. Go and get lost and discover things and, and sleep if you need to sleep outside or in a tiny motel and see the dawn. And that's the whole thing. If you have an old machine, something which is funky, which is different, something which doesn't work too well, something you understand, something like an old horse, you can travel across the West on that. You can travel to Argentina. You could travel to next door county from where you are. But you'll see something new and you'll have an adventure. And if life isn't about adventure and making other people's lives a little bit better than it was before you came into their lives, what's life all about anyway? I agree. Well, wonderful, Tarek. Thank you so much. And as I say, lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. ourselves. And I wish everyone luck, and I wish that we will all meet on each of yours adventures at some point in time. And we should all have them for our peace of mind and our growth of spirit. So God bless everyone, and I will speak to you next week. And have a wonderful day in the rain, in the snow, or wherever you may be. Thank Amen you. to that. Amen to that.